If you happen to be new here this morning, we want to say welcome to you. If you're new online and joining us maybe first or second or a few times, we're grateful to have you here this morning. We're honored to have you here this morning. And we hope that if you're looking for a church home, you might find one here with us. So we're going on through, uh, through the Gospel of Mark. So you're going to want to grab out your Bible, turn your Bible on, grab a pew Bible, whatever that looks like for you. But we are going to start, uh, continue on here. We're in chapter 1. We're in verses 21 is, is where we're going to get started this morning. We'll be journeying through Mark. I, I, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through there. I, I, through this, uh, my, my best guess is probably fairly close to a year. Um, we'll be in Mark. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, we've, been, we've got 16 chapters. We've been three weeks in one chapter. So do the math. <laughs> it's going to take a while. Yeah. But anyway, it's good. It's good. There's some cool stuff, though. We might take a break um, right after uh, um, uh, Easter really quick. Um, I think a really cool thing that we're talking about doing in PUIC is, is maybe just all of the churches that are involved in PUIC to take two weeks and preach through John, uh, John 17, Jesus' prayer for unity for the churches and stuff, and just do that. Wouldn't be the same message at every church, but the same theme, and all of the churches locally here kind of preaching the same thing. I think that's, I love that kind of stuff. Anyway, but we will continue to uh, march on here through uh, the gospel of Mark. So let's get into this, and we'll, and we'll, we'll read a little bit, and we'll get going here. Um, Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I love the immediately's, right? You'll continue to notice that we'll go from immediately to immediately to immediately through the gospel of Mark. It's, a, it's an action gospel. It's, it's, it's hitting these, these high places. Mark doesn't tend to spend a lot of time or detail on things, but he tends to just keep going immediately, immediately to the next thing. So in Jesus' day, Capernaum is, is roughly a, a town of about 1,500 people. And, and, and what happens is that Jesus, remember now, he's, he's entering into his public ministry. And remember, for a rabbi, uh, a, a, a Jewish rabbi didn't begin their ministry until they were roughly 30 years old. They had to be 30 years old to get started, and the reason was, was that, is that they figured until you were 30 years old, you hadn't lived enough life to be able to speak to other people or to speak into these areas. And so up till then, they, they spent time in training and learning and growing and just living life. But, but Jesus is now beginning this, this push in his ministry, and... and um, and he comes into the synagogue, and he begins to teach in the synagogue. Only there's something markedly different about how Jesus is teaching. He's not teaching like the scribes taught. So the, uh, the Jewish people very much respected the, the scribes and, and, a, and gave them a, a position of, of real authority um, in, the, in their society. Um, the scribes were experts in the Old Testament, Jewish law, the Old Testament law. Um, and people considered their scriptural interpretations as binding. Um, because of this, um, the, the scribes also took care of all of the scrolls and uh, they held seats of honor basically in the synagogue. So if you were going to uh, be in the Sanhedrin, which was kind of their ruling party or their 
kind of their court system, you had to be a scribe. And scribes also served in the capacity of like as civil lawyers within the culture there as well. But when they taught, they taught by citing the teaching of other rabbis. So they didn't teach it in their own authority. As they, as they went through scripture, they, they cited the teaching of other rabbis. Rabbi such and such sees this this way and this interpretation or whatever and looks at scripture in this. But Jesus isn't doing that. See, Jesus is teaching as the one who holds authority, right? The, for the Jewish, for the prophets of the, of the Old Testament there, when they got done saying what they were going to say, they said, thus saith the Lord, right? So that was the authority by which the prophet spoke. But Jesus here is citing no other outside source as a place for authority. Everything that Jesus, as he teaches and as he's leading them through scripture, he's doing so as the authority of scripture. It's a place here where we recognize and we begin to see that Jesus is looking so markedly different that it's very obvious that his proclamation and his approach to this is that he is God. He's he's no less than God himself, and he holds the authority in that sense. So he's not teaching like the scribes, and immediately, verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So in this sense, let's begin to look and see kind of what's going on here. This is, this, what, what is happening, what is going on is a progression and, a, and an explanation and an unveiling of authority and the authority that Jesus has. He is, his words, right, he's saying, they're, they're, they're saying at first, like, he, he doesn't teach like anybody else. When he, when he teaches, he teaches as one that has the authority, not on the authority of anyone else. Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh provides no benefit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So Jesus begins to explain to us through scripture that, that God's word isn't just words on a page, that it has power and it has authority, that it speaks into a deep place in our lives. It touches all the way into our spirit and it witnesses with that. It's God's word that it's alive and it's active. It's different than any other book or books, actually. That's what the Bible is. It's not a book. It's a, it's a library. It's a collection of books, right? And these books speak into our spirit because they're divinely inspired. Now Jesus is in the synagogue, and, and basically there's this man who, as he's speaking with this authority, this, this man jumps up, and this man is, is demon-possessed, right? And, and he says this. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, some interpretations say that that's not a question, that have you come to destroy us, that it's actually a statement, you have come to destroy us. A full understanding in the spiritual realm of the reality of who he is. You see, this unclean spirit knows exactly who he's dealing with. He knows that he's dealing with the Messiah, with the Son of God. 
right? And because of Jesus' authority, it, it just like brings it out. Now think about where this is at. This is in the synagogue. It's like in the church. And it's probably been in there for quite a while, just sitting quietly doing its thing, right? But now Jesus comes and this thing just basically says, what do you have to do with us if you come to destroy us? And Jesus, again, shows authority over this unclean spirit and tells him to be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet and come out of him. These two things. On Jesus' end, it's not a big deal. Jesus has this authority. And, and, and I want to remind us here, sometimes we get like a little bit freaked out about this stuff. We get a little bit freaked out when we start thinking about the actual spiritual realm, right? We get freaked out. We start thinking about things like demons. We, we don't mind talking about angels, right? But actually a demon is only a fallen angel, right? We get freaked out. We start to think about this, but, but I want to remind us about this and remind us about our faith. Nothing about our faith exists or began in the natural. If we believe that God became a man and entered into this world through a virgin birth, that he lived an absolutely perfect life, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of, for sin and made available salvation for all who would accept it, he died, was in the tomb three days, was resurrected, and is alive forevermore, and one day is coming, has ascended to heaven, is now, and is coming back one day for us all. We left the natural a long time ago, right? As a matter of fact, nothing about the foundation of our faith is really based that much in, I mean, it is based in the natural, but it has this, this, this coupling with the supernatural. You and I, we are both flesh and spirit is exactly how you were created to be exactly who you were created to be. God created a body first, the natural, and then he breathed life into that and, he, and, and we became a living soul or a living being. And it's the combination of those two things that makes us truly human. And the Bible is incredibly clear on this issue, that there is a natural realm and there is a spiritual realm. And within that spiritual realm, there are two sides. There are benevolent beings, good, angelic, and there are malevolent beings, evil. And we recognize this. We, we see in the world around us the evil that is there. We, we see the, the, the pro, propagation of, of evil in the world around us. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you that it has, it has a spiritual core and a spiritual root to it. And the things that when we're dealing with the things of our own lives and stuff, we have to remember that we can never, ever separate the physical from the spiritual because the spiritual affects the physical. As a matter of fact, I'm going to hold that, that, that as our nation and our country um, grows further and further and further away from God, what are we seeing? We're seeing increase in, in, in anxiety. We're seeing increases in mental health struggles. We're the, we're the richest, most uh, prosperous a uh, nation that has the most opportunities that probably has ever been. And yet today we're struggling. We're, 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 we're tailspinning in this place of, of, of mental health struggles and, and struggles for identity, meaning, purpose, right? All of these kinds of things. And there's this reality that you see you can't separate those two things. You can't, you can't do in the flesh whatever you want to do and believe that it won't affect your spiritual life. You can't ignore your spiritual life and think that that won't overflow into your physical life. 
because these are just, these are just facts. Now, there are things too. Don't hear me saying that, that all things have this root to them. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't things that are outside of the scope of our control. We also live in a natural world where we're all going to get sick and eventually we're all going to die. And, and that's a harsh reality. But you see, that doesn't end there. That doesn't end our life, right? That, that, that just actually, it becomes a doorway into whatever God has next for us, whatever this next stage of an intermediate heaven looks for us until the final day and our real hope, which is the resurrection. And, and, and to where when we will live once again in a version 2.0 updated physical body that has physical properties to it, and we will dwell with God here in, in, in a way that, that is, is much more um, common to us and much more understandable to us than I think that what we tend to think of. We tend to start to think about heaven. We start to think about being disembodied spirits. We have no connection with that. We have no understanding of that. We start thinking about strumming harps forever. And, and, and then we, we, we don't, we're not actually that excited about that. Why? Because we can't even identify with that. We have no way of, of really starting to understand that or identify with that. But the reality of it is, is that we are both spiritual and physical, and we will always exist that way. Ephesians 6.12 makes it really plain. Our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there is, a, there is a spiritual reality, there is a spiritual realm in which things are happening all around us all the time. Now there's a veil and we don't see that always. We don't, we don't always just see that very plainly. Sometimes we get glimpses. Sometimes we end up in places where the veil gets thin. But there's a reality to this. And as Christians, we have to remember this, that we don't just live in a physical plane. That everything in our lives isn't just about the intellect, that God isn't just, just presenting us with this intellectual faith and nothing else. As a matter of fact, um, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so as we think about that, there's, there's a real need to, to understand the reality of it and to have a right balance with it within our, within our walk. We, we understand that greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world, right? That, but that also, too, there's a reality that as believers, if, if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that you now have some authority in that realm. You have the ability to speak into that realm and to pray into that realm and, and, to, and to live in the authority that, that God has intended for us as the church to, to live in. So Jesus' authority, it extends into the spiritual realm. He starts with this picture of just saying that what he says, that the intellectual realm is his, the words that he speaks, the things that are coming out of his mouth into our intellect, those things are, are, he has authority over that. And now he's showing us also that he has authority in the spiritual realm. He commands, they obey, and he is absolutely sovereign in this, right? There is no wrestling match. In, there is no power struggle between God and the demonic realm. God has all authority in that realm. He speaks and they listen, period. Period. 
That's the reality. Jesus just cast a demon out on the Sabbath. Let's see what he does next. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29, and immediately... Here we go again. Immediately, he left the synagogue, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus just healed on the Sabbath. He's going to talk a lot more about that and as, as this kind of opens up and as he, as he continues down his ministry, but here he's, he's healing on the Sabbath, which was considered by the Pharisees' work and was considered to be off limits, right? And so, but he heals this woman, and, and look at how little effort it takes. Look at the authority that he has now, even over the physical realm, right? He's shown us the, the, his authority in the, the kind of the intellectual realm, in the spiritual realm, and now in the physical realm, that he just goes to her, and he just lifts her up, and the fever leaves her, and she begins to serve them, which could mean also, too, possibly, that she begins to prepare a meal for everybody at that point, which is now also on the Sabbath, Right? Shouldn't be happening, but she does exactly what all who have been healed by Jesus begin to do. They serve. They serve. It's the natural progression. When we recognize what, what God has done for us and the healing that he's done, it becomes our deep desire to begin to serve him. All authority is his. There is no question about this. He, 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 he commands all authority in all realms of life. He owns it all. The universe, he spoke it into existence, and he can roll it up like a scroll, it says as well. And then rising. Um, oh, no, sorry. She began to serve them. And then that evening at sundown, they brought to him those, all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So again, the, the people, something is happening in Capernaum, Right? Jesus has just begun doing these things, but the word is starting to go all over the place. And it says that that evening, which likely says that that was the end of Sabbath, right? So, so walking too far, and there were all kinds of restrictions on the law on the, on the day of Sabbath that you couldn't go against. But the, at the, in the evening time, now they begin to show up at the door here. And, and all of a sudden, there's, there's just throngs of people that are showing up. And they're bringing people who are sick and who are inflicted and who are demon-possessed to Jesus for healing. And, and it says that he begins to, to do that. He's meeting these people, and he's healing all of these people who were sick and who were demon-possessed. And then verse 30 
5 tells us, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus begins his morning. He begins this morning by rising very early before the dawn, it says, and going to seek God and to seek what, what, what the Father would have for him that day. Remember, he's, 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 he's pushed his divinity aside. He is, he is walking according to the, to the Spirit. John tells us he's doing the things the Father is doing and saying the things that the Father is saying. He's telling us the Father and I are one. And so he gets up early in the morning, and he meets with the Father, and he just prays. And everybody, all of his disciples are looking around for him, because there's all kinds of people out there that he says, everyone is, they say, everyone is looking for you. And I want you to start to kind of get this picture in your head, this, this idea that, that like Jesus is meeting, there are crowds and crowds and crowds of people that are meeting with Jesus. Right? But Jesus never gets caught up in that whole thing of like, I'm just going to stay here and I'm just going to build my following. He's always moving in his ministry and he's going around and he's spreading this good news. He's, he's telling a bigger circle of people what he's, out, what he's about. You see, he probably could have stayed there for a long time and just done a lot of ministry, right? There was actually still ministry to be done when he left. There's no doubt about it. But he left, and he went on to the other towns, and he went all through Galilee, and he preached in their synagogues, and he cast out demons. And then one of the most amazing things I think happens, it's, it's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. You'll hear me say that a lot, because I like a lot of Scripture. But, but, but Jesus, verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will. You can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So this leper comes up and approaches Jesus, which he should have never done. As a matter of fact, see, if you were a leper, see, leprosy in, the, in biblical times, it had more to do with sometimes, the, it wasn't just the leprosy we tend to think of. It was a lot of different skin conditions and things like that. It even could be, uh, the word itself could even be used for mold and things like that within a home. But typically what we think of and what we're probably looking at here is, is, is an idea, is, is this leprosy, which is called Hansen's disease. And, and this disease actually attacks the nervous system in the body. And, and if, you had a, if you were a leper, what, what it does is it actually begins to kill the nerve endings in the, in the body. And, the, and because of that, because of even the nervous system and, the, and the, the attack on it, there becomes contortions and things like that in the, in the face and and, and, and the hands kind of, they get these claw hands and different things. But the worst thing about it is, is that they begin to lose their ability to feel pain. And so 
they'll touch things. They'll grab a pot of boiling water or something and never know that they're just being burned. And, and they end up injuring themselves. And all kinds of different things kind of go into this. But if you were a leper in this culture, you see, you, you, you were excommunicated. You were out of the community. You couldn't live in the community anymore. You had to live outside of the camp. You had to live in, a, in, in kind of a, a camp of your own outside of the camp. And it was illegal for you to come within six feet of another human being, even your family. If the wind was blowing, you couldn't come within 150 feet of anyone. And so, but this guy comes and he approaches Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you could make me clean. Now, a leper in that day, too, if it was going to go through a crowd of people, if a leper was going to walk through the middle of the aisle here, he would have to yell, unclean, 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 and watch everybody just separate out as far as they could away from him as before he walked through there. He was seen as both physically and spiritually cursed by God. Touching a leper was second only to touching a corpse for making you unclean. But see what's going on here is that he comes to Jesus, he recognizes who Jesus is and what Jesus has to offer. And he says, if you're willing, you could make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And what does he do? He doesn't shirk back at his, at his appearance or who he is. He reaches out and he touches him. He touches this leper. And you know what? He heals him. See, Jesus is never surprised by our stuff. He's never surprised by the mess in our lives or the struggle that we're in or what that looks like. It doesn't cause him to ever shirk back. As a matter of fact, he moves forward and he's willing to touch into that. And see, for this leper, he, he reached and he touched someone that no one else would be willing to touch. As a matter of fact, to touch a leper meant that you're now going to live in the fear that whatever was on them is now going to get on you. But you see, when we start dealing in the area of actually touching Jesus, what's in Jesus gets on us. What's in us doesn't get on Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so Jesus heals him. And you know, when Jesus heals him, he heals him holistically. He restores everything about his life. He actually returns to him his life. He takes him from diseased to healed, from broken to redeemed, from on the margins back into the middle of society. He restores everything about him and where he's considered to be both spiritually and physically cursed, Jesus has just restored everything to him. And then Jesus tells him to go, to go, and, and to go and to make the sacrifice that was supposed to be given for having been cleansed of leprosy. So Jesus already knows, you've been cleansed, now go and offer to the priests what you're supposed to offer for having been cleansed. Now we'll find that in Leviticus chapter 14, if you want to turn there. 
Leviticus chapter 14 is the law for the cleansing of a leper. And as we go through this, I want you to get a hold of the imagery. Remember that this is an Old Testament sacrifice for the cleansing of a leper. All of the sacrificial system was all about a picture and imagery of Messiah and who he would be, what he would do. There's a a deep story in here that's told long, long before this event. But as we see this event, what we're going to see is everything about Jesus's ministry. Leviticus chapter 14, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. What a picture. Think about this. Um, It's this picture where this person has been cleansed, and then there's this sacrifice that's, that's offered for that cleansing. And that cleansing looks like two clean birds. The Day of Atonement for the Jewish people was two lambs, right? One, one lamb would become the lamb in which the, the priest would put his hands on the head of the lamb and confer the sins of the people onto that lamb. And then that lamb would be cast out, set free out into the wilderness while the lamb that had no sin upon it would become the sacrifice for the people. You see, there's two birds in this picture here. There's, and again, you know, um, this idea of clean birds or, or doves and this idea of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that's descended upon the Son at this time of the baptism here that we looked at here in chapter 1. But, but we've got this, this picture where these two live birds are taken and cedar wood. Cedar wood is that idea, I think, of the cross, Right? This idea of wood being involved with this. And then there's a scarlet thread or a scarlet string, which we see throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, the the, the curtains in the temple had a scarlet thread that ran through them. They had violet, purple, and scarlet threads that were running through this whole thing. Uh, We see that in Joshua 2 that Rahab is told that, 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 that God will give her favor when, when, when the nation of Israel comes against them and the walls of Jericho go down, if she'll have this scarlet thread in her window, that her and her family will be spared. As a matter of fact, we see this scarlet thread, I think, that runs all through the New Testament and the Old Testament, and it just ties this whole thing together. So there's scarlet string. Then there's hyssop. Hyssop is, 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 is very... Um, uh, there, there's a lot of background with hyssop. As a matter of fact, when, when, when God set the people, the Jewish people free from their, uh, their bondage in Egypt and the Passover, the final thing that happened, right, with the, uh, 
with their, uh, that, that, the, that the firstborn would die if the house didn't have this covering and, and the person was, they were supposed to take the lamb and, and the lamb would die on their behalf and they would take the blood of the lamb and they would dip hyssop, they would put it on a hyssop branch and they would anoint the lintels and the doorposts of their home. And in so doing, the angel of death would pass over that home. So this, this idea of hyssop, it has a deep history. As a matter of fact, when, when uh, Moses took blood and he put it on the people and on the, the tablets of the law, it was hyssop that he had dipped and, and spread that blood with. Um, Psalm 51, David, as he's asking God to cleanse him of his sin um, after his relationship to Bathsheba, he says, he says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. John 19, we see at the cross that Jesus has given up sour wine on a branch of hyssop. And it's all imagery, it's all, it's all meant to, to tie together for us as God's people to begin to see what God has done. You see, and when Jesus took that sour wine, he fulfilled a prophecy in, in Psalm 69, starting in verse 20. You don't have to go there, I'll just read it. It says, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. In John chapter 19, it says that Jesus took the sour wine, and after having done that, he said, it is finished. This is all to be done in an earthenware, which is a body. Earth clay always just represents the idea of a body. You shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And then to sprinkle him seven times, representing perfection, that he's been perfectly cleansed. And the one bird, think about this, the, one, the, the bird that becomes the sacrifice, the blood is then mixed with the water, the living water, the, the live water, it says. And the blood and the water, the other bird is dipped into that and then taken out to an open field and set free. This is the picture of our freedom. This is the, the picture. You see, leprosy is, is used in the Bible as an indicator, kind of an example of our sin and who we are, that we've got this disease of the flesh that we really can't do anything about that, that leaves us numb. It begins to numb us. It begins to, to change us. It's, it's the worst thing about the disease is that we become numb to what we're doing. You see, sin has this, this, this effect in our lives of, of, of having us just kind of minimize it and get numb to it and, and think it's not a big deal when, like I said before, you can't separate the physical and the spiritual in our lives. When we're, when we're living in sin, it's going to affect. It's this idea that, that it gives us leprosy. It leaves us outside of the camp. Even if we're still here in our own hearts and in our minds and where we're at, we feel like we're always outside of things. Like that we're that person that if everybody found out, all they would do when they saw us coming was to, was to go as wide and as far away from us as they could. But see, the picture and the beauty of this thing is that we have a Savior who says he's willing. That, that, that no matter how deep or how ugly or how messed up it is, that he's willing to reach into that. He's willing to touch that place and to make us whole and to restore us, 
to bring us back into a community and back into a place of fellowship and goodness because this is his desire for us. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become to in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you see all this stuff in this, in Leviticus 14, all over from, from way back there? It's this picture of the healing of a leper. You know, one of the really hard things about having leprosy or dealing with sin in our lives is, again, that idea that it begins to numb us and we don't even know that we're hurting ourselves. We don't even recognize, again, anymore the things that we're, that we're getting a hold of that are just leaving us scarred and broken and hurting and in pain. You see, there's a real gift of pain. One doctor, I can't, I can't remember his name, when, when, when he was talking about it, he was kind of the leading guy on, on, on leprosy. And he said, if you could do for, for people with leprosy one thing, what would you do to them? He said, I would give them the gift of pain. Because pain is that thing that keeps us aware. The reality of what we're doing and, and, and where we're at in our lives. And as long as we're experiencing pain, then that becomes a protector. See, a lot of times there's, there's a lot of pain that gets involved with our sin. But that pain can be just a gift. It's, it's a gift that wakes us up to the reality of what we're doing and much better a God much more loving a God to give us the gift of pain than to allow us to just continue to disfigure ourselves and to live in that other place. That's why the tree of life has been withheld. Because God is good enough and gracious enough that it said, look, while you're in this sinful state, I'm not going to allow you just to eat freely and live forever like that. Because that wouldn't be good. Jesus restored everything about him. Jesus stands ready to heal everything about us. Never think that it's too much or that it's too ugly or it's too disfigured, that it's went on too far or that Jesus would shirk back if you asked him, if you took it, him, took it to him and asked him, if you're willing, could you make this clean? And then finally, verse 45 says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. What an amazing picture, right? That, that he's supposed to not say anything. I don't know what to think about that, but he goes out, and he, and, he, and he just tells everybody, and now Jesus can't even go into a town. This is how much his ministry is blowing up. This is how much of a buzz that Jesus is creating in the world around him. And people are just going to him. Crowds and crowds of people, wherever he's at, they're going. And sometimes I think, you know, like, like, like we've got to be challenged with that as the church. Because as the church, you see, we're meant to... to represent Jesus here on earth until he returns. And honestly, there's an individual and a corporate responsibility within that. Individually, as you and I and everyone else in here is moving, so is the church moving. Corporately, as we're moving as a church body, so the church is moving. 
It's not either or. We can't just be independently out there doing ministry, nor can we just relegate all of the ministry to the church. We have to both. We have to do it both. All of it is ministry. There is no separation between the secular and the sacred. Wherever we go, whatever we do, it should be on our mouths, just like this leper. We should be telling everybody. And honestly, the churches in the town, we should have people flocking here. We have the best message in the world. We have the greatest cause to live for. We've got to We've just got to really be a people who are so sold out to this thing, so quick to share. But there's a reality that, that we're, we're living, a lot of times we, we live with a, a sacred and secular kind of disconnect that, that we're not quick to share when we're out and about. And, and it doesn't mean you have to be annoying. Don't be, don't be one of those people. Please don't be one of those people. But if we believe what we say we believe, Right? Shouldn't that change our lives? Shouldn't, shouldn't that make it, bring it to where it's right there on the edge of our lips? Any opportunity that we feel like God opens up for us to have a conversation with somebody who's lost, boom, we should be there. So Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that just as this leper was cleansed, that Lord, you offer that to us, that we see your ministry and we see your cross. We see everything about who you were, that you were, you were the bird that was, that was the sacrifice, and that your blood was mixed with that living water, and, and we have been immersed and dipped in that as believers, and that, God, you, you want to heal us wholly and completely. You want to restore everything about us, and you want us to, to, to live in the community that you've intended that we would that you want to restore our flesh and you want, to, you want to make all things new in our lives. You want to take the sin that we offer to you and you want to cleanse it. And then, God, you want us to, to just be set free into that open field and just to fly. So, Lord, may we just be sold out to that, sold out to that vision and that, that, that idea. May we have no sacred, secular disconnect, Lord, May we recognize that it's all sacred, that all that we do, everything we go, wherever we go, whatever we do is sacred. And you consider that so. And Lord, we thank you that you've considered lives and our lives to be sacred and that you want them to be filled with meaning. So Lord, may we not be caught up in things that don't bless us or don't heal us or don't bring hope to us. Help us, Lord, to just to be completely immersed in you, knowing that you're the greatest thing that we could ever pursue. Help us, Lord, to keep our, our focus on you this day. And Lord, help us to just allow you to do all that you want to do in and through us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.